0: This episode of Back to the Point is brought to you by the 2020 Golf Classic, which is taking place on Monday, May 11th at Wollaston Golf Club. And if you haven't gone to this event before, it's a great event. I highly recommend attending. Uh, And if you haven't signed up already, go to the bch.edu website, um, register for this, get a a bunch of guys out there, or go by yourself and join another group. Um, It's a great event, a lot of fun, um, and great to get together with. Um, a bunch of folks from BC High and from the BCI community. So, highly recommend that. A couple housekeeping notes. As always, you know we want to hear your feedback. Uh, some of you take us up on this. Some of you don't. I'm just telling all of you that we we actually do want to hear it. We're trying to make this something that everybody wants to listen to on a consistent basis. So. Uh, if you have suggestions, especially for guests, you know there there's a lot of incredible stories happening out there, um, or have happened out there up to this point, and we want to we want to get those folks on. We want to hear from them. So uh, back to the point at bchigh.eu, you know, message me on Instagram at RickGolding3 at BC High Eagles, That's the the school's account. Uh, we want to hear from you guys, so send that along. The other quick uh, housekeeping note i wanted to send along to all of you is uh we're actually going to be doing a live recording of back to the point at uh ignatian values day um at bc high so we're gonna be recording that on march 13th i'm genuinely excited about it i think it's gonna be really fun we're gonna have phil perry come back on and talk about the art of storytelling on the airwaves you know phil was a prior guest on this pod and we that conversation was great and um when when the folks at BC High approached approached me about doing it um obviously I was 100% in and I wanted uh I wanted Phil to come on and um talk a little bit about his work in in storytelling and um you know as a journalist and, and the things that he does with the Patriots and in uh with NBC Sports so March 13th Friday Ignatian Values Day we're coming back to campus me and Phil we're going to do a uh a live recording of the pod. It's going to be a blast. So uh, you have that to look forward to. Um, we got a couple other pods lined up as well in the next few weeks. Um, but today's podcast, this one that you're listening to right now, I got to sit down with Mark McLaughlin from the class of 1997. And his story is really interesting. He joined the Navy. He flew airplanes off of aircraft carriers in the Persian Gulf then became an investment banker, and then founded a whiskey company. So, uh, you know, and just a lot of really cool stuff and uh, happened in the, kind of in that story and a lot of things that he learned that he shares with us. And, um, you know, I think he's had a lot of fun on the way, but it all started at BC High. Um, and he talks a little bit about kind of where, how BC High kind of, Um, led into the Navy and, and everything after that. So it's a great pod. I really appreciate Mark taking time out of his busy schedule to be with us. That is more than enough out of me. Let's just get to it. All right, we are taping this on a Friday here in the third floor of Loyola, and I have in front of me Mark McLaughlin from the class of 1997. Uh, he has graciously agreed to join us this morning, all the way up from Maryland. Um, Mark, how are you doing?
1: Good, good. How are you?
0: Good, good. Yeah, no, we're excited to have you. I, I, uh, and for the listeners, Mark and I have exchanged a, a, a good, a fair amount of uh, text messages and phone calls trying to get this arranged. But uh, Michael O'Brien took us home and helped help get us <laughs> set up. So, good job by Mike. Um, so. As we talked about right before we put the mic on, I, I looked in looked at your looked at your company's website, which we'll get to, um, and there's a lot of cool stuff in there in terms of the story of the company. But also, since you're one of the founders, uh, your story is intertwined very much with the story of the company. I think what I want to start with today is just talking a little bit about. Um, so so first of all, you joined the navy. Yes. And from there it's kind of uh, what i what i read is it's kind of an interesting progression so i let's just start there and i'm going to let you roll with it um can you talk, let's start with the navy what 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 led you to be what led you to join the navy uh, and kind of go from there to kind of where we are today
1: with you sure so actually it was when i was here at pc high that i started thinking about the navy um, and so when i went to i went to villanova um, mm-hmm. after pc high yep so I joined the Navy ROTC uh, program mm-hmm. when I was there. I'd always been kind of drawn to uh, to the military um, just because, you know, my dad was a Marine. You know, my maternal grandfather was a Marine. My you know, dad's dad was an uh, Army Air Corps, you know, both in World War II. So it, always, it was something that's been in my family. Um, you know, not career, but just, you know, during certain portions of wartime and whatnot. So uh, that was always kind of on my mind. Um, I wasn't dead set on it, but I went to Villanova and ROTC was there. And it just seemed like... Uh, you know, something I wanted to to try. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I joined up and really never looked back. Uh, but I was drawn to, you know, the element of service. Obviously, part of it. Uh, obviously, the element of, you know, adventure, excitement. You know, go kind of strange new places. You know, do new things. Yeah. Um, and for the most part, it panned out. It was it was a great experience. So, uh, but yeah, for Villanova, four years of ROTC, and then I graduated and um, I was selected to go to flight school to be a, a naval flight officer, which is. Uh, most people aren't familiar with the term. It's uh it's like the guys who don't have the eyesight to be a pilot. It's like the, the goose, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like run the weapon system. I was just going to ask you,
0: yeah. 2020. Or, yeah. uh, I do
1: now. The Navy fixed it, but when oh, I got really? selected for my job, I was like 2400. <laughs> I, I couldn't see the alarm clock at night if I didn't put my glasses oh, wow. on. Oh yeah.
0: wow, yeah, I'm like that too. I mean, I have contacts in right now, but it's the same thing. I'm like, oh, yeah. I could never fly a plane. It's like Mr. Magoo, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'd run it into stuff. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but uh, but I loved it. I did. Uh, I uh, flew a plane called a Prowler EA6B. Um, it's uh it's a Carrier-based um, electronic attack mm. platform. So, which is to say, basically the primary job was to, um, in an airstrike, to be the platform that was suppressing the radar uh, for the enemy missiles and whatnot. Oh, interesting. Uh, so it was a really interesting job. I loved it. I mean, loved the people I worked with. And yeah. I, I, I was active duty for nine years. Um, you know, would do it again in a heartbeat. I loved every minute of it. Yeah. <clears throat> and then for me. Uh, I was really on the fence about at that kind of nine, ten year point, staying in for a full you know twenty plus year career, yeah, uh, or trying something different. And I was really, really on the fence. Um, and I don't know what this says about me as far as my decision making process, but I just said, hey, this is a GI Bill. That's great for uh, you know you know great benefits to go to grad school. Yeah, I applied to three grad schools that I thought all should laugh at me, and one of them let me in. So, <laughs> so I said, all right, well, hey, maybe that's a sign. I'll go to I'll go get my MBA. So all right. Um, and it was a little more thought than that, but probably not much more thought. No, no, no I understand.
0: <laughs> it was uh, Virginia, right?
1: University of Virginia, yeah. Yeah, yeah The yeah. garden school.
0: Um, oh, to your LinkedIn,
1: too. I should uh, say that. <laughs> that's right. So, uh, so yeah, that's what kind of led me from the Navy to, you know, I, you know as much as I love the military, like I said, and if I had stayed in, I would have loved it. Um, yeah. You know, part of it was looking at the next... You know, 10 years to get to 20, I probably would have been away in some ways to perform for, you know, three and a half, four years or something crazy when you add up all the deployments and this and that and the other. Um, so I have, you know, tremendous respect for my buddies who stayed in and did that with children and whatnot. Yeah. And, um, but um, and also I figured, you know, at that point I was, what, 30, 31, something like that. You know and I, I figured the iron was still hot for me to completely redefine myself and maybe at 42 43 I would, it wouldn't be quite as mm-hmm. you know readily available mm-hmm. so anyway for all those reasons I, I leapt out um, went to uh, to grad school you know hung on to flying for a couple of years I flew with the reserves um, for about two years when I was in grad school the Navy reserve the, the Navy reserves yeah out of Andrews Air Force Base it was a small Navy contingent on Andrews ah. Air Force Base so I would drive up from from, gotcha. from Virginia for the weekend you know fly make a little bit of money yeah um, you know kind of scratch the itch, if you will yep. And then into investment banking, and when that happened, it was, you know, whatever it is, 70, 80, 90 hours, some crazy hours. Um, and year, I, couldn't yeah. do, I couldn't do both. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. you're very familiar with that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I let go of the flying there, which, you know, I missed, but it was the right choice, I think. And and mm-hmm. then, you know, two years of banking. Um, I can keep going on that. Or, yeah, 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 no, so, keep,
0: um, keep rolling. I mean, you went to business school. You decide to kind of enter the the financial services industry. I, I was wondering if you could actually before we go forward, c- can you talk a little bit about what it was like for you to transition out of the military and back into like yeah you know civilian learned life, but also back into school. I mean, I'm sure yeah. that was like a, a not jarring, but like a a, a transition.
1: It was. It was one. the um it, what the the academic part of it wasn't as much of a transition as it was just the culture part of it. Yeah. Um. You know, there's. anybody who's listening who's been in the military or people can kind of, you know, imagine it's a a very uh, distinct uh, kind of subculture of the American culture, right? And there's certain Mm. things that are acceptable there that aren't other places. And and I don't mean that in a bad way, it's just that uh, I had to really keep an eye on just like, hey, things that I could probably say and do in the squadron, kind of a kind of a locker room environment, you know, those aren't going to be normal in the real world, you know? So there was a There's a a, a period of kind of just like sitting back when I got to grad school and kind of figuring out what the norms were uh, in the quote unquote real world. Yeah. To make sure that I kind of fit into that. Yeah. Um, I definitely, there was, you know, I don't know, my class of, I think it was like 300 students maybe at Darden, maybe 340. And there Mm -hmm. were probably, I don't know, 10 or 12 military guys, maybe a few more. We all kind of hung together. We all, we, we whether we said it or not, we're feeling the same thing. And kind of, sure. Kind of we stuck together and figured things out. Um, yeah, that's that's good that there was like a contingent. Oh yeah, I would have been I would have been lost without it. Yeah, uh, which is probably yeah. You know, that sounds like an overstatement, but really, like you know, those are the guys I felt completely at home around. So, right. Um.
0: And and, uh, do you think you did the Navy Reserve as a way to kind of ease that transition, either consciously or subconsciously?
1: Um. Not really easing the transition from military to civilian world per se, but it was a way that, um, I, when I joined the reserves, I didn't know that I was going to do two years and then part ways with it. Um, that was kind of the function of the fact that banking was just so all encompassing as far as yeah. time and whatnot. Right. Um, so really it was more of a way for me to yeah to hang on to some element of what I really, really loved about the Navy, um, in an ongoing way. Uh, so it wasn't really a transitory period. It ended up being so, but it wasn't designed to be that. I gotcha. Uh, yep. I gotcha. Um, but, yeah, see, what else about grad school? Um, uh, one thing I say that I, I did learn was that you know, I came to grad school with a very specific background. It was, you know, the military. That's my only professional experience in life. You know, before the military, I worked at bars in college, and I worked at Sullivan's. It's, you know, over in Southie. So, like, no know, kidding. I, you worked yeah, at Sullivan's? Yeah, I, I, I was all through Oh, my God. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, I love Sully's. The place is a, oh, It's incredible. great. It's an institution. And, yeah. Uh, if you
0: haven't been to Sully's, go to Sully's. Go
1: to Sully's. Yeah. Uh, go. <laughs> so it was... Uh, so I, mean, I I'd never worked in you know really a professional setting before. Um, so there were certain things that you know I showed up very self conscious about not knowing, just basic basic for example financial terms. You know, yeah. Um, yeah I remember at one point I'm sitting there I'm like. I'm a little embarrassed here, but uh, is revenue the money that comes in or the profit at the end? And my buddy was like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I am (laughs) serious. Just tell me the answer. (laughs) So, I mean, basic, very, very fundamental things. I just never really had to – I mean, that's probably an extreme example. That's pretty – I should know that. Uh, No, no, no. I mean you know, the term EBITDA, you know, for those of you who are familiar, it's a a very commonly used financial term, and people would throw that around, and I'm sitting there with my head down, like, oh, man, what is this term? And you break it down, it's not all that complicated. Right. Uh, It's just jargon. Um, So, for the first, you know, three, two, three months, I remember just. Trying not to look stupid, just trying to absorb what I could, and then finally I felt like, okay, I think I know enough here to, yeah, to feel like maybe I belong here. So gotcha, yeah.
0: yeah. And um, there's some pieces there's some pieces about uh, the Navy stuff that I want to revisit a little later. But uh, now, when you were when you were going through grad school, I guess let me back up. When you got into grad school, did you have a sense that you that you were going to go into investment banking, or did you? Did it just kind of, like, happen while you were there?
1: Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I got there. Um, But that changed very quickly just because of the nature of it. And I'll explain that in a moment. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I didn't really know. There was nothing about, I'll say very honestly, I think that if I looked at grad school programs, and you had, like, an MBA program and, like, maybe a public policy or public administration, um, I think what drew me in more uh, was probably the public policy type stuff. Like, that would be, what would have got me more excited? And but my mindset was, you know, the world of you know business is pretty fast. It's you know pretty yeah. much almost everything, right? So I'm like I'm like, there's got to be something out there that. When I get, my dip my toe in that environment, you know, I'm going to see something that's going to be interesting and appealing, and say, yes, I want to do that. Um, so I kind of went in a little bit blind, say, you know, because I, I looked at the, you know, the banking, the, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, management consulting and those things. I, I knew a little bit about those things before I got there. Yeah, none of them were really drawn me in too much but I, again I just figured well I've got to be missing something here there's got to be something here that I'll really love
0: yeah and uh, I, I also know, don't a lot of military guys go into consulting
1: consulting and banking both oh yeah. Yeah, no, but banking yeah. too okay I know yeah. that
0: there was a big because I, I, I know a few a few guys who have come out of the military in different branches and have gone, gone to get their MBA because of the GI Bill and sure. the great yeah, benefits yeah. it makes total sense um, but then end up going to like McKinsey or or you know yeah McKinsey uh, draws a lot of military guy yep. you know a lot yep. of that because I think they like the way that they think analytically and approach certain problems and things like that
1: I think it's that um, and speaking very candidly I think there's also uh, any sort of very client facing position like that um, I think there's also an element of they like to walk into the room if there's a team of five they got you know you know Joe Blow here was in you know, the Marine Corps or whatever. Yep. You know, what I mean, I think that also. And I don't mean to dismiss it because it's, no, I, no, no. I think I think you're very much right that they like that different, you know, the discipline, the line of thinking. But I think there's also, you know, to a certain element, a uh, a marketing element to it as well, Sure. Uh, which is just very candid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know in my case, that was kind of the case where I would go to meetings with my bosses. I, we'd pitch deals, and yeah, I was junior enough where like I didn't need to be there. I didn't really add much, but once in a while, because I did. Um, we were in aerospace and defense was our, our the sector we covered in, in my firm my group in the firm yeah and uh i think sometimes i was brought along just to be like hey you know we've got one of those <laughs> you know yeah yeah yeah. Uh, which is fine hey yeah yeah use it um yeah but uh i don't mean to sound cynical it's just the reality of it
0: no uh, no no I, I and i mean it, it's actually i think in a way a compliment to sure. your service in the yeah. military and and how it's esteemed and respected i, I think sure. yeah yeah
1: i will say that uh just as a funny aside like my boss he was a nice guy he was a little bit uh He won't be listening to this. I know. So, yeah, so I, I can say whatever I want on about him. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll call him, you know, Bob, which is not his real name. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, we would call, every meeting we'd go to, he'd say, uh, he'd say, and this is Mark, and blah blah blah. Hey, Mark, how many combat missions you fly in Iraq? I'm like. Sixty, Bob. Like it was like this whole routine he did. i <laughs> Yeah. I'm like, I'm like yeah. Just, Oh man! Like don't yeah. do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I got gotcha. you. But the uh, at any rate, uh, I think I got us off topic. No, here. no, no. The, um, tangents are great. That's yeah, one of my good. favorite things about <laughs> the pod. Right. Yeah, I love going off on tangents. Um, the
0: uh, so we were talking about. Um,
1: oh, what did I know what I was going to do? Yeah, go yes. kind of going into yeah. investment banking. So what what did it for me was I got there and I kind of figured out like I mentioned earlier, I didn't know what was what in the business world. Right. And to me, banking drew me in. Uh, first of all, I find finance very interesting, and then um, it seemed to me to be a, a sector where I could get into a, a investment banking job and get exposure at a very rapid rate to a lot of things that I haven't been exposed to before. So, for example, you know, even though it's a finance job, you know, we're doing M and A. So let's say you want to sell your, we do a middle market M um, and A. So you know, you want to sell your company. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you grew it from. For the past forty years, you grew it to a hundred million dollars in revenue, whatever it is, and you want to sell it. You know, so much of our job, and I'm sure you know this, um, but uh, for those of you who aren't as familiar, um, you know, so much of our job is really getting to know the company, not just the finance side of it, like what you do, what makes you tick, and you know, yeah. And you know, as a 32 year old or whatever I was, you know, associate, you know, low level associate at an investment bank, you know, I'm sitting there with CEOs, CFOs, and you're kind of hearing their kind of most intimate. Professional thoughts uh, because they're either trying to sell their company, they're trying to raise capital. It's something very important in their company's life, you know, cycle is happening. Yep. And you're you're in the room, you know, your your opinions being re- requested, which I always felt like I don't know why you want my opinion, but here it is if you ask for it. But uh, you know, I'm about, I'm the junior guy here. You know, you don't yeah, yeah. Really want my opinion. Leave from. me out of this. <laughs> 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 That's right. I will tell you what I think, but I would put a big asterisk and say this guy has done this for one year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, at any rate, it, it was. Uh, all that exposure and it did play out the way I thought. That I think I, I left there feeling um, much more competent to just go out into the broader world. Saying, "Okay, I got this military background, which is extremely valuable to me." Um, but you know, it was that period where I kind of like, "Okay, now I now I know how the regular the rest of the business world works a little bit better." Yeah, and that's where I felt confident enough that I, I that I at least knew enough to be dangerous to go try to do my own thing. Okay, um, so I hope that was a long winded way. No, that no, question. that was great. Yeah.
0: Right. So, but here we are. Here I mean, we are. Yeah. I mean, you decide. Uh, to go off and as you said do your own thing now walk us through a little bit what led to that decision was it purely dissatisfaction with the IB world or was it that was part of it
1: yeah um, and again this, this whole part of the story will probably say more about me. You know not so positive way than I like, but I'll say it anyway. Is uh, <laughs> you know, kind of like my my grad school decision. It's like oh, I'll just you know, yeah, yeah, I'll fly to three. Yeah, but, one's in Boston, yeah, one's in Philly, yeah, one's in. Philly, yeah. Hey man, and it worked you know, out. Right, it worked it
0: out, right? out. So you know what? It's all good. <laughs>
1: if my mother listens to this, she's going to be shaking her head. So embarrassed. <laughs> um, so um, so, uh, what was the question? Sorry, I lost. Oh, oh, so no, no. as far as why, yeah, yeah, what yeah. was the decision process? So I, I've been I had, had been thinking about you know, from when I went from the Navy to grad school having my own business was always very appealing. Uh, I just didn't feel, I think mostly rightly so, that I was in a position just to jump out and do it. I just didn't know enough. You know, yeah. Hence that transition period with banking, which as much as I didn't necessarily love that period of my life, uh, I think it was worthwhile to do it. Um,
0: yeah, it's like going through a buffet line in life, right? Like, you take a little bit from each experience, and sure. some parts of the buffet line, you're like, eh, but I should probably put a little bit uh, of this on my
1: uh, plate. Okay. I, I never looked at it that way. That's a great way to look at yeah, it. It's buffet buffet yeah, it's yeah. a buffet approach. <laughs> that's buffet approach. Yeah. Um, so that was, uh, so, you know, in a bank, so from the day I stepped into that, that job, it just wasn't really what I wanted to do so I, you know for a couple of reasons, I stuck with it A because I, you know I, I made a commitment to it um, yeah. and in my mind you know if I don't like it I'm not going to leave it second day and say not for me I'm going to stick it out and at least give it a good shot so in my mind two years was uh, you know two years was an appropriate amount of time to you know the firm that hired me to give them two years of hard work and and to try to give them some value, you know, obviously for me to get value from learning from the experience. Mm -hmm. But after two years and my opinion of the job hadn't really changed that much. Uh, And again, which is not to say it's not a great job and there were some wonderful people who worked there. Uh, It just was a bad fit for me is all I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, Uh, of course. So after two years I realized, hey, this is just not, you know, this is not sustainable for me. Um, And my Annie, my wife, would tell you a different element which is like I was, you know I was unhappy it wasn't really what I wanted to do and I don't mind working 70 80 hours a week that's that's fine it's doing it when you don't like what you're doing was the, was the problem yeah, I'd work probably I'd say I probably work as many hours now with a lot more flexibility and yeah. I love what I'm doing so it's a very different you know animal but at any rate, um,
0: yeah. If you if you if you love what you're doing, and or if you love really love the people you're working with, yeah, I feel like you could you could do anything and, and work as many hours as exactly as there are in the day. Yeah, and if
1: I can shoot home and see my kids for two hours, yeah, and go and back then, to work like in, that's, that makes all the difference, Oh, with all right? the, well, you the know, difference. That is.
0: absolutely. Yeah.
1: Um. So. Uh, so it wasn't like you know I said I guess so what I was saying my wife would probably tell you like, I, I wasn't very pleasant to be around. Uh, you know, because I was just very unhappy and tired. Well, when you're and, exhausted, and exhausted. Yeah, oh, exactly. I
0: completely understand. Yeah, yeah. so
1: uh, so you know, decided, you know what, this is just not working. So uh, you know, I think what I told myself, and <laughs> definitely what I told my wife, was that, hey, I think I think I'm I'm done. And she was supportive. She 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 didn't like it any better than I did. And uh, I said, here's the deal. You know, I'll, I'll spend maybe half my time looking for you know a, a legit job, and half my time maybe exploring this. Uh, distillery concept that's been kicking around in my head for, for a couple of years now Yeah, and uh, she said yeah sure it sounds good and I quit the job and uh, and then basically you know, from that moment I, I didn't even look for a job and it, I wasn't being dishonest to her it was just it, I went 100% into this and, and never looked back yeah it took off uh, it took off and it took off in one way uh, by sheer serendipity is that so I was uh, so I was stationed out not too far from Seattle when I was in the Navy a buddy of mine was getting married and I was the best man in his wedding it was a Navy buddy of mine and he was getting married in the Seattle area and it happened to be like the week after, I, I think I left my job on a Friday and it was a week from that Saturday. So like eight days later was his wedding. So I'm like, well, I want to start a distillery and there's a bunch of distilleries and breweries in Seattle. It's kind of a hotspot. So I just went to Google and I said, you know, distilleries, Seattle, it's just thinking I'd find, you know, somebody's place I could pop in, shake hands, and just like talk to the, you know, yeah. just whatever, just yeah. something. Right. And I hadn't really had a chance to do that. The job you think, oh, you left your job, you know, without doing any of this, like, well. It wasn't time. Like it was any time I wasn't working, I was trying to see my kids for a minute. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't have time to like do a business plan and then leave the job. It was just no time for that. Right. So at any rate, so when I googled that. The first thing that popped up was a thing uh, said, "Hey, the American Distilling Institute uh, annual conference is Seattle this week," and it was that week that I was going to be out there. Oh. Like you know, like the next week or whatever wow. it was. So I said, "Hey, I'm going there anyway." Am I Talking about just- a sign. Uh, well, it gets better. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh geez, I'm sorry. So uh, so I go out there, and so I you know I, 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 Book my flight to go out there a few days early, stay with uh, my buddy's brother, and go to this distilling conference and, you know, sit down, you know, three or four days having quit my job, you know, bright-eyed, excited. And I just rapidly realized, like, how little I know about the distilling world. I knew I didn't know anything. And this just, like, reinforced that severely, like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Yeah. And this whole organization, by the way, the American Distilling Institute, their their shtick is kind of helping, is trying to cultivate the growth in the industry from the, you know, the grassroots level. So yeah. people starting new distilleries and whatnot. So even though this is like designed for, for newbies, I still felt like, oh man, like, I don't know what I'm doing. And it was a bit uh, overwhelming uh, at first. So the second day of the conference, I remember just taking a break saying, I'm going to go sit on a couch out in the lobby of the hotel here, check my email, my phone, just take a breather, uh, you know convince myself it was a good idea to quit my job and lose my health care and you know all that stuff and right uh an older gentleman just plopped down next to me on this couch and he said you know hey how, how you doing so i honestly didn't want to talk to him i was in a self-pity mode i kind of just wanted to be alone yeah uh, but i'm not a jerk so of course i say hi how are you and, yep uh, we start talking and he says what are you doing here so oh, i'm from you know, I live in baltimore and uh you know i just quit my job to start a distillery and i'm a former navy he would start talking he's i'm a former navy guy and he was a former army he was a vietnam vet uh and after talking for about 10 minutes he said oh you're trying to start a distillery well hey uh, you want to buy mine Oh my God. So I'm thinking, you know, in banker terms, I'm thinking like, you know, okay, who's your you know, where are you in this process? You know, I'm like, yeah, you know, who's your attorney? Do you have a banker? Blah, 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 you know, valuation, all this. I I just start kinda asking these questions. He just looks at me, he says, Whoa, 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 you're the first guy I've told. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So he just uh he had driven down, his distillery was like ninety minutes north of Seattle. And he drove down uh to the conference knowing that there'd be lots of guys like me there that were just getting started and figured, hey, if I want to sell my business. There's a, you know, target-rich environment of people who will maybe be interested. Yeah, definitely. And the reason that he was looking to sell his business was that his business partner slash neighbor slash friend, uh, also a, a military guy uh, from way back, uh, was terminally ill. Mm. So they were in their 70s. They were doing this as a retirement hobby. I and mean, I could... Their story is a whole different podcast. They're, it's it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I'm happy to get into it. I, don't <laughs> know. I, I It's... They're a trip. Uh, but... Uh, uh, Jim, uh, the sick one, was you know was terminally ill, and this went from being kind of a fun two-man hobby uh, out of Bob's barn, you yeah. know, in this remote part of uh, Washington State called Samish Island, uh, and it went from being a fun hobby to being a chore. Once Jim couldn't work anymore, and uh, you know it was just kind of time to for them to let it go. Sure. So uh, at any rate, um, you know, we exchanged contact info, and you know, at first I'm thinking. I don't know, this is how I envisioned this happening, but uh, I, I kind of warmed up to the idea. Eventually, I just flew out there, stayed in his guest house for a couple of days, made whiskey with him, just loved what he was making, loved everything about it, and thought, maybe maybe this is a good idea. So raised capital, from mostly from Navy guys, actually, Navy Marine Corps guys, not because that's who we targeted. We didn't ask friends for any money. It's just those are the guys who came to us and said... You're raising capital? I said, yeah, well, can kind I of take a look? You know, so yeah. if, if friends asked us, we would let, you know, but we wouldn't even solicit from friends and family. Gotcha. At any rate, raised the money and ended up moving out there, uh, living for months in Bob's guest house. Jim had died and uh, learned the trade as much as we could in, in three, or four months and you know, packed up the distillery and moved back to Baltimore. So it's kind of a kind of a wild story. Yeah, so, so you said we. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, so, my business partner is uh, it's kind of Arch Watkins, and mm-hmm. he and I flew together in the Navy. Mm-hmm. So, that's how we met. Um, we both ended up living. Uh, so, neither one of us is from Baltimore. Obviously, I'm from here. Yep. Uh, he's from Tallahassee, Florida. Um, but we were in the Navy. He got out and he worked. He was an engineer working in the uh, kind of Baltimore, D.C. area. Mm. Um, and it, it just so turned out that uh, he lived in a certain neighborhood in Baltimore where my brother in law, who I also, we also flew with, lived. And another friend, a PC high grad actually. Um, oh wow! Ray Minahan was ninety three. Uh, all these three guys. What's up, I, Ray? Yay, Ray. Yeah. <laughs> if Ray even knows what a podcast is, I'd be <laughs> I'd be shocked. But uh, so we uh, so we moved to uh, all end up in the same neighborhood called Butcher's Hill in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. For those of you familiar with Baltimore, it's just just above Fell's Point. And uh, we anyway, so we're all there. And uh, so when I decided to quit my job to do this, uh, Arch. Uh, you know he liked his job uh, but he was kind of looking for something a little bit different mm-hmm. and he just liked the idea and and uh, you know i forget his thinking it wasn't very long that he uh he said hey you want to you want to partner in this and i said like you know absolutely yeah uh, the help, I'm doing, sure. doing it alone was uh, i had two grad school buddies who were kind of involved but they had full-time careers and they, yeah. they can only do so much right and uh, having somebody who was willing to um to jump in with both feet with me um was transformational um so and a person you try i mean he's a friend already you trust him completely. So yeah. it, it made a, a enormous difference. So yeah, he and I have been at this for, for uh, it'll be six years next month, since we kind of jumped into the, into the fray. So yeah. yeah.
0: And, and you should probably mention the name of your company. I should,
1: I should. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a horrible, I'm a horrible <laughs> No, 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 it's yeah. all good. I just want to make sure you get yeah. it. Yeah, So it's uh, Old Line Spirits, O-L-D-L-I-N-E. Um,
0: Where's the name come from?
1: So the name comes from, It's that, so it's the, what most people don't, no one outside of Maryland knows this and very, not many people in Maryland know it either. Is the Maryland state nickname is the Old Line State, Ah. and it's a cool story that relates back to um, the Revolutionary War, Hmm. where uh, the quick version is that I'm gonna say it was I should know the year, maybe 1776 or seven, whatever it was, that uh, Washington had most of the Continental Army in um, what is now Brooklyn slash Long Island, Mm -hmm. and some of it on on Manhattan. And it was a period of the war where the British were, I think, still hoping for a somewhat peaceful resolution. And it got to a point where that became readily apparent it wasn't going to happen. So um, Admiral Howe and the Royal Navy started landing troops on, um, you know, on Long Island to basically rout the American army just and, and end the rebellion. Uh, so Washington, when the British started to land, Washington realized he was heavily outgunned and also that he had a very weak position or weaker than he, you know, not as strong as he thought and immediately realized that he had to uh, withdraw to Manhattan and then up, you know, away from New York. Yep. Uh, So in order to buy time for that to happen, he needed somebody to distract the British or occupy the British while they were landing uh, to give the rest of the army a chance to escape. So he used a unit from Maryland, which uh, they called the Maryland 400, which was, you know, 400 or so people uh, who happened to be very well-trained and well-equipped. I think they're from more affluent backgrounds. They have better weapons and, you know, probably better training. Because back then, so much of it was what your family could provide you with, right? So at any rate, um, he chose that unit for uh, for that reason, that, you know, that they were kind of, you know, the best equipped to Mm -hmm. really do this mission. And uh, and they did, and they and they held off the British for long enough for the rest of the army to escape across the East River, and then you know ultimately to safety. Uh, but in doing so, there was like ninety-five percent casualties. You know whether it's you know killed, wounded, captured. Um, so they took enormous losses to do that. So and he called that unit uh, his old line because it saved the army that day. So when statehood came, because they were a Maryland unit, uh, Maryland became the old line state. Oh wow! So we like that because we love the story. In Maryland, some, you know, enough people know it where people say, oh, hold on, okay, I, that's, yeah. that's got to be a local company. But yeah. it's not like we were, for example, in New York and we had Empire State Whiskey, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas whether you like it or not, there's a strong association with New York. Here we get the, kind of some local benefit in Maryland. No drag in other markets, right? Gotcha, yeah. Um, and we just think it's great names, you know, good heritage, and yeah. it sounds like a whiskey name. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It for, for sure does. Yeah yeah, 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 That's
0: a really cool story. I didn't yeah, know that. It That's, is cool. Yeah, yeah. isn't listen, listen to us teaching history on I know, the podcast. Right? Yeah.
1: Listen, look at us. That's right. Look at us. Um, Mr. Argento can put that into his... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is he still teaching here? Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I think so, yeah.
0: I, I saw him uh, not too not too long ago, so yeah, he's still here. Um, so... You you start this business with kind of it sounds like a, a modge podge of like friends and people involved and navy buddies and yeah. you know different people pitching in when they can but then you get your your partner who kind of really steps in. Um, what was what was the most surprising part of those early days at Old Line? What what was like? Oh man, we didn't see this coming.
1: Uh you know there's a million things. I mean, like anything else, there's some things that just were easier than we thought and some things that were just incredibly more difficult than we thought. Yeah. I'd say that for the first six years, the biggest one would be, uh, and it's going to sound a bit naive saying this, that the, no matter how good the product is, how good the price point is, um, it's a very competitive market and getting traction uh, on the, you know, marketing and sales side is an enormous lift. And I think it's one of those things where I'm sometimes kind of thick headed where if somebody, you know, people I know and trust can tell me things. Over and over again, and I'll, you know, I'll say, I get it, I get it. And in my mind, I'm like, ah, I don't think he really knows what he's talking about here. Like, you know, I, I think I know better. Uh, and we got, we were given that advice of like the amount of time and effort and money you to spend, uh, and the loss you need to take to really get a brand established is is pretty mm-hmm. you know, noteworthy. Um, and I, and in my financial planning, I would always put marketing as kind of, if sometimes it was almost like a, uh, a marketing budget was almost, almost say an afterthought, but it was like, after all this other stuff, what do I have left? Sure, marketing. It's like, it was yeah. just the wrong way to think of it. Um, and uh, But, it in, the, but in the early days of a company, it's tough to be like,
0: we have X amount, you know, I'm going to dedicate this percentage to sure. marketing. I mean, that's a tough
1: I, I totally understand. Yeah, and, and so much of it is like, you know, marketing is such a broad term. It's like, but well, what does that really mean? Right. So a lot of it was us figuring out, like, you know, when we spend dollars here, where does it really go? But Interesting. Okay, uh, yeah. But, like, you know, an example of that is we went to our – so in, the, in this industry, for those of you who don't know, you know, this is, we're the supplier. We produce it. Then we have the distributors. We sell to a wholesaler, and they, you know, then they sell it to the bars and restaurants and whatnot, and then, you know, you guys buy it at the retail store. Yep. Um, so the distributor we first worked with uh, in Maryland, you know, we said, hey, in the early years, we have a somewhat limited amount of whiskey because we only have what we took over from Bob and Jim, uh, from their distillery, uh, and we're making a bunch, but it's going to take a couple of years to age. So we didn't want to run out, uh, which in hindsight was not a problem. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we said, uh, hey, listen to the distributor, I think we should target you know, 10, 15, maybe 20 accounts. Um, I, I would rather service those accounts and keep them supplied and not be at a point where we run out at a certain point, uh, which is fundamentally sound logic, but... What wasn't fundamentally sound was the fact that that wasn't going to happen with 15 accounts, and they were they were very nice. They kind of politely said, uh, "You're crazy. Like get into as many as you reasonably can. Like yeah. you're going to want to." And they were 100 percent right. But my mindset all that is to say my mindset was that, "Hey, it's a new category. It's American single malt whiskey, which I'll talk about here in a minute. Yeah, you know, it's uh, you know in Maryland, it's a local company, and you know we price it that you know competitively for other single malts. All these sorts of things. I'm like, I, I don't know how this thing won't just be flying off the shelf. And even with all those things, that it was, you know. A well thought out brand, a great product. I'm biased, all these things obviously, um, and the price point, you know, was right. It still was just a very heavy lift of you know more hours than I would like to even admit. Standing in liquor stores, pouring samples. I'm actually going later today to do that up here. Oh really? Okay. Mar- Marty's Liquors uh, <laughs> uh, over in Newton. Uh, I'll be training up a guy down there. But you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's it's the the drudgery of it. I knew it exists and I wasn't afraid of it. But um, I think if you ask me, six years from when I started this, why well, I'd still be doing. You know, that kind of grunt work and I would yeah. think yeah maybe a little bit and no it's it's a big part of my life as it should be yeah uh, anyway I think I over answered your question no no yeah. no you were going to talk about um, American Single Malt American Single Malt so one of the interesting things one of the things that drew us to the opportunity to learn from you know Bob and Jim yeah. was that they were making a, a product that I didn't even heard of before which is American Single Malt Whiskey so Arch and I set out originally with the concept of making uh, bourbon and rye uh, you know bourbon and rye being just the quintessential American style whiskeys you know we both love those products. They're great. You know, Both have been on kind of a tear yep. these past couple years. Um, and American single malt, uh, at the time I met Bob, I didn't even know what that was. And I'll explain what it is here. So single malt uh, whiskey is uh, basically, the, there's a couple of layers of definition, but the primary one is that it's produced at one distillery uh, and it's made only with malted barley. Malted barley is the primary ingredient in most beers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very, it's an expensive grain, uh, but it gives you a really rich flavor. Um, bourbon gives you more, you know, corn gives you more of a you kind know, of sugary sweetness. Rye gives you more of a spicy bite. Malt, uh, malted barley gives more of a, it's got some sweetness to it, but more like a rich toffee kind of biscuity note to it. At any rate, single malts uh, traditionally have been made in, you know, mostly in Scotland. Uh, some Irish whiskeys are single malts. You know, Japan makes a lot of single malts. It wasn't really a big thing um, in America. And kind of the reason is that when whiskey's developed in different geo, you know, geographic locations over time, before it became a luxury product like it is now, it was a very economical thing for a farmer to do. So if you grew corn in Kentucky 150 years ago, well, you know, every farmer down the road is harvesting his corn at the same time as you. So you're all going to hit the market at the same time. So mm. the market can absorb only so much. You can only feed your livestock and your family so much. Well, okay, you can make a bread and some sort of beer out of the stuff you know, to make some extra use out of it, but that will spoil relatively quickly. But once you distill something, once you boil off that alcohol and concentrate it, once you get above a certain strength, it becomes permanently stable. So it was a way for farmers to take a, uh, a crop that would otherwise be wasted and make it into a commodity that they could consume themselves over the winter, they could sell, they could trade. So the point there is that whatever the prevalent grain was, was what the whiskey would be primarily made with. So in Kentucky, corn is king. Bourbons are you know, uh, corn primarily. Usually, maybe 70% of the recipe is usually corn. You know, Maryland, rye, uh, you know, grows very well. It's often used as a cover crop. Well, you can till it under, mm-hmm. or you can make a rye whiskey out of it. Well, of course. Uh, in barley grows uh, better in short growing seasons. So in places like Ireland and Scotland, that's mm-hmm. the prevalent grain. So that's what they would make their whiskeys with. So all this is to say that single malts, because Corn and rye are much more common than barley in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That's where the um, that's what kind of what the the whiskeys developed as you know corn based rye based. But with the boom in craft brewing in the past you know twenty years oh yeah. um, what do they use malt to barley? So now the availability of this grain is so much greater. So distillers like us are saying well why can't we make a single malt whiskey just like in Scotland yeah but with like an American spin interesting and that's what's kind of happening so. Uh, the way we're doing it, this very so the American single malt category is very new. So it's, you know, there's a lot of different things happening, and there's kind of two camps. There's you know the camp that is trying to kind of recreate Scotch style whiskey in America, uh, which is one camp, and there's some really cool stuff happening there. Uh, and there's guys like us uh, who are trying to uh, make an America a single malt whiskey in a definitively American style. Mm-hmm. And the primary way that we are doing that is that we're using the old world kind of grain concept, that malted barley. Uh, Ours is not peated, so it's not smoky. Um, Think of like a Highland malt. Um, But what happens in Scotland is because they don't have a lot of oak there, so they will use uh, second-use barrels. They'll use use bourbon, use port, use sherry, uh, which is a wonderful way to do it. Um, But they'll just import these barrels, so kind of freshen them up and use them again. Um, In America, for a bourbon or an American rye whiskey, by law, you have to use um, a, a fresh oak barrel, virgin oak. So the flavor in that oak, you know, is so much of what gives the whiskey its character. It's, you know, a fresh oak barrel will taste different than something aged in a used barrel. Mm-hmm. So the that's a, kind of what I'm getting at is we're a, making our uh, single malt like a, like a non-smoky single malt scotch, but we're aging it uh, the way you age a bourbon. So the, the flavor profile is really interesting. It draws very, very much both from, you know, single malt scotch drinkers who don't think they like American-style whiskeys are really drawn to it because there's a lot of the character that malt they like and bourbon drinkers who say I don't like scotch a lot of them are really drawn to it because it's got a lot of the vanilla and caramel from the fresh oak aging so it's a really interesting category Uh, the challenge for us and there's many challenges but for any business but the challenge is that right now it's such a small category that very few if anybody walks into a liquor store saying I'm here to buy American single malt they come in for maybe, hey, I want whiskey of some sort, and there's this whole bourbon section and whatnot. Um, and something about old line, whether it's somebody standing there pouring samples, or something about the packaging, or hang tag, or whatever it is, something needs to draw them in to make them change their behavior from going in for a bourbon and coming out with a single malt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the challenge for us, is, is kind of. Gotcha. And we're not trying to convert anybody. Um, you know, the, gone are the days where, you know, uh, you know you're a bourbon, you're, you know, I'm a McAllen guy only, you know. Yeah, maybe the older generation is kind of there where they have a very, very brand loyal, maybe they drink one or two, maybe three whiskeys. Uh, you know, our generation is much more, uh, I mean, the term actually is promiscuous consumers. People are much more <laughs> likely to try something a little bit different. Gotcha. Uh, or, or, you know, kind of maybe we're a little more whimsical. So for Old Line, we're not trying to be somebody's only whiskey, we're trying to be one of maybe hopefully maybe six or eight or ten, in, be, be in a rotation. Yeah. And for us, that's in the new, if in the new world. If you go somewhere
0: and you see it on the menu or something, or you see it, oh, oh okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. Or, like, you know, you, you have, you know, um, a liquor cabinet, you have friends over, and, like, you know, hey, I want a whiskey. And you have, the, you know, if we're one of the eight or ten or twelve you have in your cabinet and uh, that, you know, you reach for, that's yeah. a win because that's the new reality, you know. Yeah. It, um, so, and we're, we're doing well. We're, we're growing really well in Maryland, Ma- Massachusetts. We're relatively new here. So it's, you know, we're just trying to get the brand awareness out and- uh, Yeah. But, I was just gonna ask you, what's next for Old Line? So right now we're expanding. Um, so we're, we certainly haven't saturated Maryland. Maryland, DC, Delaware is kind of that, we kind of lump them all together at home market. Yeah. A lot of growth still to happen there, but we're definitely to the point where we're firmly established and we're, you know, still growing at a, at a pretty rapid rate there. Yeah. Um, but we feel now that we can keep that growth going. We'll look at new markets. So we're in Massachusetts now um we're selling in new york new jersey and then colorado as of i think april maybe Uh, and then we're going to stop for a bit and just really you know uh figure out how to make these you know non-home markets really really work for us got it um and like anything else it's a heavy lift and you got to get out there and just feed on the street and shake hands and pour samples and yeah you know train train up people to be your eyes and ears when you're not here, and yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's but or your voice, or your voice. Yeah. yeah, The best, yeah, the brand. Like you know, having me make sure people, you know, or when they talk about the brand, they're they're talking about it in the way that we feel is the right way to talk about it, which you know is important. And you know, that messaging is critical. Yeah. Um. And uh, so that's really important to us that anybody we have working for us understands, you know, kind of who we are as a company and what we're doing, and um, and yeah. kind of transmits that message the right way. Gotcha. Yeah.
0: Um. I, I was hoping. You know, we've kind of brought folks up to this point, but what, what, what have you, what did you take from uh, your time here at BC High that that you think has kind of played a role in kind of each kind of quote unquote phase of your life so sure. far?
1: Yeah, it's um, a great question. I'd say that, and I'll kind of answer it tangentially, but um, again, we love tangents. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> tangents are great. Tangents are great. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that. Uh, one of the biggest things for me was showing up here, you know, freshman, 14 years old, um, and being in an environment where I think you were treated like an adult from the, the get-go. You know, mm-hmm. the, you, basically you were expected to behave as such. The bar was said you have more latitude than other kids at other high schools as far as, you know, freedoms and abilities to do certain things. But that came with, you know, came with an expectation yeah. that you would adhere to a certain standard and behavior and – And and academics and all that. So that, to me, I think being treated—I mean, people generally speaking—you know—rise to the level of expectation. Um, And I think that the level of expectation is high here. Yeah. Um, It was when I was here, and I'm sure it's the same or even better now. You know, I think it's a wonderful thing. So you know, showing up here as uh, a—you know—like anybody at 14, you're very impressionable. And I think that you know, the exposure to the people, uh, both the staff and the students here, and that level of expectation and being treated like an adult—I think is that time in a, in a still a boy's life is incredibly, um, valuable. Yeah. Um, and that just kind of, you know, all those things you kind of build on and carry through, you know, I went to Villanova after and I loved Villanova. It was a wonderful place. Um, but PC high is so much more of, of, you know, my identity, I think. And, and, um, that's funny that you mentioned
0: that because, uh, I went to BC and I, I love BC Jesuit school, great Jesuit education, but, um, you know, I, in my mind and in my you know day to day reality, tack back to BC High as kind of the, I don't know, we want to call it the cornerstone yeah. of of, yeah. of kind of one of the cornerstones I should say of my identity, a lot more than uh, you know college or law
1: school. You know,
0: yeah. it, it, I I totally agree. I'm, that's yeah. my long, long way of saying yeah. I'm with you. I, I get it. Yeah, I, I am a hundred percent with you.
1: Uh, but, yeah, so it was, that's, uh, you know, and, and I think those lessons just pervade through, you know, your entire life. It's kind of, like you said, qu- cornerstone's a great way to put it. You know, it's kind of a nice, uh, you know, anchor is not the right term. Yeah, so you can always kind of fall back well, on you're a Navy it, guy, an you know. anchor would that's right? Work, yeah, right? Yeah. That's right, that's <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, And, uh, yeah, you know, and the Navy, uh, for me, was uh, equally as uh, defining, I think. It's just in a very, very different way. Um, yeah. But uh, aside from those two things in my life, you know, I've been very fortunate. to have great experiences, Villanova, Darden um, uh, you know, banking, all those things, even old line, but like those two things, I think the Navy and, and, and BC High by far were the most defining uh elements of my life, and you know, I'm, I'm very proud of both. And I would do it the same way again 10 times out of 10. So, yeah, same. Um, so same. yeah, it's a special place here. So,
0: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, the fact that you come back after all these years and spend what an hour or whatever with a guy you've never met before yeah so, yeah, always so, you know, fun yeah. shooting the breeze um, yeah. uh, one question that I wanted to ask you that's kind of like a, not a not a silly question but just something I want to ask you what's it like to to take to be in a plane that's taking off from an aircraft carrier.
1: Oh, ha, nice. I, I uh, just yeah, I got to know It's yeah. like it's one
0: of those things that I'm like that must be incredible.
1: It's uh yeah, know, I, I remember the first time so the prowler was a side-by-side so I would the pilot was in the left seat and I would sit in the right seat next to him. And, yeah. Uh, is the prowler the one with the big radar thing? No, like that's the, called an E2. This okay. is um it's uh if you know anybody knows what an A6 Intruder was. This is an A6 with two extra seats in it, but Gotcha. It's a, kind of a round nose. Um pretty ugly airplane I mean I love it but it's a pretty ugly <laughs> tough looking airplane um, but it's got uh, it's smaller than that plane uh, it's more kind of tactical looking got um, it. and it's got these kind of big the radar jammers are actually under the wing Oh,
0: okay, uh, okay. they look
1: almost like bombs but they're just these radar jammers got it um, so it is. It depends. For my first time, I, I'll never forget. You know, uh, I was flying with my commanding officer. So I was a new guy. So I flew with him for for a bit. Yeah. And uh, I did not really know what to expect. I kind of know what to expect, but it's a uh, it's a very dramatic acceleration. Yeah. You go from zero to 150, I guess, and maybe like I don't know, like a second and a half, two seconds, or something. So, and this is a 60,000 pound airplane. So it's a quite a. Yeah. It's quite a. On category. the ocean. Let's uh, be clear. About that's right. This. The, f- the first time I remember, the the boat was moving a little bit, and I remember the bow was coming down and. You know, everything was set. You know, the pilot had saluted, which is kind of the final signal, like we're ready to go. Yep. And I, it felt like you know, 20 seconds. I'm sure it was like two, but the, the you know bow starts coming up, and they try to shoot you when the bow's coming up, just so you know. Oh yeah. It's better to have upward momentum than, than, than downward. downward right? Right? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but it's I'd say at night, it's terrifying. Um, oh my! I didn't and, even think of that. At night, on a, on, a, on a moonlit night, it's not too bad. Uh, a dark night where there's no horizon, because you go from having some visual reference. Once you get, you know leave the bow, there's a zero. The problem is that your inner ear, which is so much of like what, how you tell which way is up in the world, literally, yeah. um, is very, very disrupted. during Because your body's not used to acceleration in, this, you know, in that direction. You're right. Um, so your body tells you that the plane is nosing up, which is very uncomfortable because you know, if that really were happening, you'd stall, and then you know, that's it. Um, it's really not. So you're, for the first two or three seconds, at night especially, you have to just look at the instruments and know that that's right. And it's very uncomfortable because your body's telling you it's not right. Uh, and there's been the planes have flown into the water because they're listening to their body, not the instruments, and they've just flown a good plane right into the right into the water. Oh boy! Um, so that, that's the, the nighttime launches are. They're actually, I think the nighttime launches are scared than the nighttime landings. Gotcha. Uh, daytime, I would if my job could be to do that in the daytime for the rest of my life, you can pay me pennies and I'd do it. Yeah. Uh, if it was to do nighttime, I would tell you like, no thanks. I'm good. I'm, <laughs> I'm good, man. Yeah, yeah. But it was good. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. It was fun, yeah.
0: yeah. And and you were in the Persian Gulf.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh five, oh six. Um, our ship was in the uh, in the Gulf, and the, the prowler happened to be in high demand um, at that period of time um, f- because we had we the, you know, the community of prowlers, not me, but the engineers and stuff had retro or adjusted um, the jammers to not only target radars but to also um, help suppress uh, radio controlled IEDs. So uh, a lot of my, you know by the time I got there, a lot of it was was trying to work, uh, and we would also had a communications jammer, so we would work with you know, special forces guys were going to go to whatever, you know, middle of nowhere town to grab, you know, whatever person. And part of our job would be to try to shut down um, the communications networks enough where, you know, the warning system so that they could show up unannounced and, yeah, you know, do what they needed to do. Gotcha. Um, so, uh, yeah, but that was uh, so the point being um, because of that, especially on the, that particular side where, uh, what do they call it? Uh, there was a term for like the kind of quick reaction thing. You know, A carrier is a big machine and it's got a rhythm and this thing's in the middle of the Gulf. So to get from the carrier to Baghdad, for example, first of all, as long as the ship's ready to launch, you get up, you launch, you have to go up, you have to get gas, airborne tank on the way up there because it takes like you know, maybe 90 minutes. Uh, you need to get gas to be able to do anything when you're up there Then you have to leave there, get gas, you tank it several times and you have to go all the way back to the carrier. Uh, so they put some of us in a place called Al-Assad which is a a big air base that's uh, the one that was just rocketed by the Iranians actually oh okay Uh, it's not too too far from like Ramadi Um, and a bunch of us went there and we would split our time between there and the ship because from the from the the beach as we call the Navy from the shore you need to be much more uh, reactive so if you know some unit needed us yeah. Rapidly, we could have a, we could much more quickly, you know, get in the plane and, and, and go and go. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so I spent time in Al-Assad, um, but aside from being in the airplane, um, I never left the, the perimeter on, on, on ground, which I was completely fine with. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was an experience. Yeah.
0: yeah. I can imagine. Um, so the, the, the one kind of portion of your life that we haven't really covered that I want to make sure we touch on before we go is, um, well, I mean, I'm sure there are other, multiple other portions of your <laughs> life that we haven't talked about, yeah. but uh, you have, you have a wife. Yeah. Um, you have a family. Yeah. Um, talk, maybe just talk a little bit about, about them and.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny Actually that, that that's a great segue because uh, what I didn't say earlier. So Annie, my wife yes. has been tremendously supportive um, of go Annie. Done. Go Annie. Yeah. She's awesome. And she, and, and uh, lest there be any mistake, She makes the money in this family. Right? So like old line is not, I'm not living high in the hog cause old line. Uh, yeah. but my wife, uh, she's got her own business. She's a, um, a, a behavior analyst. So she has her own business as like a, um, advocate for children in, um, different school districts around, around oh, Baltimore. Wow. And, uh, so she's the one who's, you know, she's, she's putting the food on the table, not me, which is, uh, and she's, she's incredible. And then we have, uh, three kids. So Maggie is nine, John is six, and Evelyn is, uh, is three. But, uh, to Annie, when, uh, when I quit the job, went out to the West Coast and I told you I met Bob and this whole thing was developing in a way that, uh, wasn't how I envisioned it. I thought I would start from scratch, excuse me, myself. And the idea of buying somebody else's business and whatnot at first, it was kind of like it just wasn't fitting into the, the paradigm that I envisioned. Yeah. It, was, it, it took me a little bit of time to wrap around my head around, hey, this is a great opportunity. And so I went out there and met Bob. And what Bob did was ship me some whiskey. He's like, hey, why don't I ship you whiskey? This is before I actually had gone out there to you know, work with him. Taste it. See, see if you like it. Let that be a first step. See if you like it. Yeah. So he shipped me a case of whiskey, which I'm pretty sure was illegal, but he did. And um, <laughs> and I get it. And I remember sitting in the back, you know, uh, kind of – porch area in my house it was nice out so I, was, I was sitting out there and I, I popped you know a bottle open I take a sip and I think really deep down I wanted it to be bad because mm-hmm. it would have made my decision very easy if it was bad whiskey I could have said yeah we're good we're good I'll go back to the way I thought I was going to do this in the first place and I took a sip and I was like oh man I really like this yeah and I honestly that was I was it was weird I was almost like almost bummed out like oh man this is now this might I'm faced with this decision that's you know right and I didn't know I didn't know what the next step was going to be yeah so I'm sitting there in that moment drinking the whiskey and feeling oddly bad for myself which is I don't really do that often <laughs> but in this story I've mentioned it twice uh, so I'm not that much of a self pityer but uh, my wife comes out and she just uh, and, and before I say this she is a person who like likes stability she likes you know, the Navy she she was an Air Force brat you know she loved the fact that I had a steady paycheck and all that and you know, the benefits of the military predictability
0: so, predictability, so,
1: so for her to say what she yeah. was about to say it was that much more of a credit to her is that um I said, you know, I don't know what to do here. Like, you know, I was just kind of wallowing in indecision. And she said, listen, like call a lawyer tomorrow and incorporate a business or don't or get a job. Like this is this is got to end. This can't go on. Yeah. Uh, she's like, you know, it's only been a week or so, whatever it was since I quit my job. But she's like this. This isn't going to work. And I uh, said, like, get a job or start a business, but do one or the other. And gotcha. that was kind of the kick I needed. You know, it was just like, all right. And that was that was really the uh, the catalyst to saying, all right, well, this is now going to be a thing. And, and so so Annie Annie has been hugely supportive. Um, you know, my family's been wonderful, and yeah, um, you know, they couldn't do it without them. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, congratulations on all of your success. Thanks, Rick. Congratulations on all of uh, Old Line success. Thank you. Um, and I really appreciate you coming in. This has been a great conversation. I've, I've had a blast. Yeah, me too. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll keep in touch. Yeah. And we'll go from here.
1: All right. Thanks, Rick. Right. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Okay. That wraps up this episode of Back to the Point. Huge thank you to Mark McLaughlin for coming by, hanging out, talking about his story. Um, it was great. I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, thank you to Michael Bryan for helping us you know, nail this down and get it scheduled. Um, and for everything he does to help the podcast. Uh, thanks to our fairy pod mother, uh, Kristen Brophy, for consistently just making uh, the technical side of this podcast possible. So thank you, Kristen. And most importantly, thank you to all of you for listening. Uh, as I told you at the beginning, we're going to be doing a live recording uh, over the next few weeks, and uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So look out for that. Look out for a couple other pods we have, and uh, that would be Pretty much wraps it up. We'll talk to you soon.